Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. This is episode 154 of Historically Thinking. Trees, as you may know, have rings, and those rings turn out to be remarkably useful for telling us about the past. Not simply about a tree's past, but about that of the world in which it grew. Which means, in a funny way, the trees can tell us something about what it meant to be human. And indeed, what it means to be human, at least insofar as we can measure in trees, the effects of our causes. With me to discuss trees, their history, and human history is Valerie Chouet, she is Associate Professor in the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research in the University of Arizona and the author of Tree Story, The History of the World Written in Rings. Valerie Chouet, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me, Al. Well, it's a real pleasure uh, to do to talk about this book. When I first saw it, I immediately, in the catalog, I knew I wanted to talk to you about it. Um, as I said to you before we began recording, I am actually a photographically confirmed tree hugger. You say in the book that you are not a tree hugger, but there's something about trees that I really love. And I think I think the, one of the first sort of wonders of the natural world moments for me was my father showing me tree rings and in a tree that he had cut down. Um, and it sort of made me see the world in a different way. Do you remember when you first learned about tree rings? I think it was in a very similar way. I remember in growing up in my parents' house, oddly enough, in our bathroom, we had what we call, what I nowadays call a cookie, so a cut cross-section of a tree um, mm -hmm. that clearly showed the rings. And, and in a similar way to, to how you expressed it, uh, the seeing of the rings and learning um, that you can estimate the age of a tree by counting its rings, something <clears throat> that I learned um, very early on. Yeah, and as a scientist now, it makes yeah. it very easy to explain my science, or at least its core principle, uh, to many people, because most people have learned as a kid that you can do this. It, it's interesting that so many people, as, as you say in the book, have this, they have an emotional reaction to it. Um, perhaps it's because I was encountering something that had been living and was not. Mm -hmm. uh, something that showed its age, the way that um, people mark their children's height on the wall uh, from year to year. Um, and that then my father explained to me that you could tell what the year was like by the width of the ring, uh, wet year or dry year. That was, that was, I was learning about history and that was about something that was much older than me. Um, that was unforgettable. Um, and if that turns out to be at the heart of what you do, but before we do that, I want to talk about the bristlecone pine because, uh, you mentioned the bristlecone pine and I immediately went down a rabbit hole reading all about bristlecone pines. <laughs> um, and in a way it's a good place to begin because the bristlecone pine is, as you express, it's sort of the, how shall we say, it's like, it's like the foundational fact of dendrochronology of, of what you do. So tell us a little about the bristlecone pine and about the old, the, well, yeah. Sure. I can talk about bristlecone pines for hours, so you might have to stop me at <laughs> I'll, some point. I'll cut you off after five minutes. <laughs> okay. So the bristlecone pines are some of the oldest living trees in the world. And when I say old, I mean old. The yes. oldest dated uh, bristlecone pine, living bristlecone pine, was more than 5,000 years old when it was sampled uh, in 2012. So these trees, uh, and many of them are more than 4,000 years old, uh, these trees um, have been around and living since the time of the Egyptian pyramids, since they were built. So, so to put things in, in context. Now, most of these trees grow here, or actually all of them grow here in the American West. There's a bristlecone pine national forest in the White Mountains, um, in the very east of California, on the border between California and Nevada, where you can go and visit them. Um, 
so with trees that are four to five thousand years old, like the bristle cones, that mean they have four to five thousand rings uh, to count. Um, there's a reason why these trees grow in it's a very barren landscape. So it's high up in the mountains. It's also a very dry area. So it's a cold and dry environment, which means that uh, the trees grow very slow because they're limited by how much they can grow. They don't have a lot of water. They don't have a lot of energy because it's quite cold. Um, and But because they, slow, they grow slowly, they can grow for a very long time. With trees, it's a little bit like that um, Neil Young song. You can either burn out or fade away. So trees that grow fast typically don't live very long. I'm thinking of poplars or aspen or mm-hmm. trees like that. On the other hand, trees that grow very old typically are the, the slow growers. So scarcity and privation of the of the environment right. leads to longevity. Right. And there's a number of reasons. There's, there's exceptions to that rule, mm-hmm. like the sequoias, for instance. Um, yeah. they, they can also grow up to be 3,000 years, and they're, they're not living in such a scarce environment and they also they're huge um or the we were talking about the eastern cypress which or the eastern is cypress, exci- exactly yeah exciting yeah. exciting thing. research from the last couple of years in eastern north carolina they found what 2500 year old yeah. uh, eastern yeah. cypresses yeah um which live in swamps they um, do then, <laughs> yeah they have no privation whatsoever Completely they have more than they... intuitive yeah exactly so yeah it's it's not different with trees as with anything else that to every rule there is an exception or <laughs> multiple exceptions yeah so the bristlecone pine in, in a way explains why a belgian scientist <laughs> now lives in tucson <laughs> uh, right? it contributes I mean, to it for contributes sure to yeah. that. yes um so, having so, grown up sorry go yeah. ahead Go ahead. No, you please go ahead. I was going to say, having grown up in a very densely populated country, uh, Belgium, uh, with a long human history, and as a result, with not much uh, wildland or wilderness left, uh, then moving to, I now live in Tucson and to the American West, uh, which is sparsely populated and with with relatively speaking, large amounts of wilderness. It's really a pleasure as an environmental scientist and someone who studies old trees to be, you know, very close to them and not very far removed from them. Yet the it's sparsely populated and also sparsely populated with trees. Yes. Um, <laughs> how does how did the laboratory of tree ring research end up at the University of Arizona in Tucson? Yeah, there's, you a make whole, a good... there's a very fascinating history history of history of science there. Yes, you make a good point, Al. Um, the reason why is that the very first dendrochronologists uh, we're talking about the early 20th century, Andrew Ellicott Douglas, started off as an astronomer, um, and that's the reason <laughs> why he first moved to Flagstaff to. Uh, start to develop the the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff. And after um, Douglas and Lowell, they fell out because Douglas did not believe in Martians, unlike Lowell. Um, So uh, Douglas then moved to Tucson, Arizona, got offered a, a professorship there. And it was Douglas' idea to start looking at tree rings to better understand the history of astronomy, actually. That's why he originally started looking into tree rings. Douglas had an interest in um, the energy coming from the sun and and a potential cyclicity in Uh that energy, so solar cyclicity. And he figured that since trees grow, and like many of us, he knew that trees form rings every year and that trees can be relatively old organisms, he uh, hypothesized that with trees living for a long period of time and being sensitive to you know solar radiation, that by looking at the tr- rings of uh, in trees, he might be able to say something about the activity of the sun back in time. Huh. 
Now, that plan didn't pan out exactly how he had hoped. We're actually still not entirely sure. It's still an active, now we're talking a century later, an active field of research, um, if and how cyclicity in the sun influences tree growth. Um, but so Douglas started collecting his first shaving samples in the early 1900s. And around 1915, his research caught the attention of archaeologists in the region. So around that time was also uh, when the Southwestern archaeology um, experienced a heyday because the, mm-hmm. um, all of the ancient Puebloan ruins in the Four Corners region um, were being discovered by, by Europeans. Um, uh, Some of which had been point, abandoned for uh, like a thousand years by that time. Right, exactly. But at that point, it didn't. They had no main, means to really date those ruins. Absolutely, mm. they knew they were there. They knew they were abandoned, but they no, had no idea if they had been around for two hundred years or mm-hmm. or two thousand years. But when with Douglas's streaming research. Um, Archaeologists hypothesized that maybe the wood that was found in these ancient Puebloan ruins could be tree ring dated, and that way there was would be a way to actually date those ruins. So Douglas then started working on archaeological wood from the uh, the sorry Four Corners region, and it took him about a decade, fifteen years, to figure it out. Um, but in 1929, he actually was able to date the first um, southwestern uh, ruin, so ancient Puebloan ruin. And then from then on, once he had that one date, it went super fast. And within a year, you know, 75 of those ancient Puebloan ruins uh, were dated. And so then there was dendrochronology became this very, very useful and unique tool in archaeology, and because of the many uh, applications and novel results that came out of it, um, the University of Arizona uh, allowed Douglas to then start the Laboratory of Tearing Research in 1937 uh, in, in Tucson, Arizona. There's a couple of, of lovely um, sort of I know, parables on that. One is uh, the weirdness of the history, history of science. Looking for Martians leads to dendrochronology. Uh, make of that what you will. <laughs> but the unintended, exactly. unintended consequences <laughs> yeah. of scientific investigation. Um, but also, it just uh, that Andrew Douglas was, I mean, I mean, going down that rabbit hole and well and reading about him, um, David Staley, who talk, we talked with, I think, back in May of, of 2019, advocates... Uh, what he calls multidisciplinarity rather than interdisciplinarity. And here you have Andrew Douglas, who actually knew a lot about two things. Not He didn't cross them, astronomy and, and trees. He went deep into both. And it's fascinating what, 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 when you know a lot about two things, what happens when you mash them together. Um, but we should get to like first principles. Um, so what are tree rings? Because uh, we know that they exist, but we might not know why they exist. Sure. Um, tree rings are formed when a tree stops growing once a year. Um, so they are not formed everywhere. Uh, a lot of tropical trees do not show annual tree rings. Hmm. But in temperate regions, uh, and arid regions, semi-arid regions, and arctic regions where trees grow... Uh, the trees uh, start growing in spring when it warms up, and they form wood with um, uh, big cells that allow the wood to transfer uh, to transfer water because of, uh, and nutrients because it's spring and the tree needs to grow fast, so it, it needs to be able to transport a lot of material in its wood. Towards late summer, the wood that a tree forms starts to change uh, because at that point, transport the trees is starting to prefer, prepare for its winter 
dormancy for its hibernation. And so transport is no longer that important for the wood, but structure is. So it needs, the wood becomes a little denser um, with, with smaller wood cells so that it, it gives the tree more support rather than transport. Um, and then in the fall, the tree stops growing altogether because it, it's going into dormancy because it's winter and it's cold and it's dark out. Now, the next spring, the tree starts the same process all over again with these big cells and this lighter wood. And so the boundary between the, the, uh, the wood type, the dense wood that the tree forms in the fall versus the early wood that is spring, that it starts forming in spring, um, the boundary between the two is what we call a tree ring. So you can actually see the difference in these early wood versus late wood uh, cells. And so this process of early wood, late wood, and then a dormancy period, and then early wood, late wood again, the tree does every year. And that's what why tree rings are annual or yearly, why each re ring represents one year in a tree's life, and why by counting these rings, you can give an estimation of how old a tree is. Hmm. Um, is that all you can get from it, just the age? I mean, what else can you learn from it? No, that's that's a basic, uh, a basic principle. Now, um, the as as you mentioned earlier, how much a tree grows in a certain year depends to a large extent on the climate in which it grows. So mm -hmm. I'll give you the example of here in the American Southwest. Trees that grow here, uh, they always it's always warm enough for them to grow. So that's not really a problem. What is a problem is that they don't always have enough water to be happy. So in a wet year, when there's plenty of water, the trees are going to form wide rings because they're really happy. In a year when it's much drier and there's not enough water uh, for the trees to grow, they're going to um, they're going to form a narrow ring because um, mm -hmm. they're not they're going to be limited in their growth by how much water they have. And as a result of of the uh, change between wet years and dry years over time, the trees are going to form a, a pattern of wide and narrow rings with wide rings in wet years, narrow rings in dry years. Um, there's a couple of consequences to that. One is that all of the trees in the same region that grow under the same climate are going to show that same pattern of wide and narrow rings in the same year. That is what allows us to not to not just look at living trees and the rings in living trees, but also to look at the rings in dead trees or in wood, such as the archaeological wood I was talking about earlier in the Puebloan ruins, and to date the wood that we don't necessarily know when the tree was cut. But because uh, all the trees show the same patterns, all the trees that grow at the same time show a similar pattern of wide and narrow rings, you can kind of, it's like a barcode, and you can match those patterns between living trees and dead trees or living trees and archaeological wood. And so when you find a match between the patterns, you can actually date that archaeological wood. Now, that seems to me really hard to do because um, I've noticed in cutting down trees that um, you know the, the, there'll be a ring difference between say trees on different um, parts of a slope. Um, yeah. To some extent, because they're they if I have a tree say that's down towards um, a creek at the bottom of a hill, it's going to get a little bit more water um, in a dry year than um, the one farther up the hill. So how can that be done? Uh, that uh, how can how can we make larger statements about the sort of climate that both trees are experiencing that year? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the climate is not the only influence um, on 
a tree, on the growth of a tree in a certain year. There's competition from other trees mm-hmm. around it. There's microclimate conditions. Like you say, one tree might be growing closer to a river than, than another tree. Uh, there could be a forest fire, for instance, and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, but that's why we typically take a lot of samples um, to build what we call tree ring chronologies. We rarely just look at a sample from a single tree, especially when we want to draw conclusions about past climate. Mm -hmm. Um, If you take a lot of samples, what they have in common is going to be not the competition from other trees, not the microclimate conditions, but the climatic conditions under Mm -hmm. which they so, well, you say a lot of samples, and I think I know the answer to this, um, because you describe one of the great things in the book is you describe a lot of field work. Right. Um, and we'll get to that in just a, a sec, but how many samples are you talking about? So, it depends a little bit on the aim, the goal of, of the study that you're doing, but for a climate reconstruction uh, study, for instance, you'd go with at least 25 or 30 trees. Okay. And so you go to site um, site B and you bring back uh, 25 um, samples. We'll get to that in just a second, how you do this. but right. And then you're, you're in your lab with a microscope. It doesn't have to be a very, or a, some kind of thing. And then you, what do you do then? How do you start to correlate them uh, to try to match the years to one another? Yeah. So the... Um, the first step often, well, you, you take the samples, um, you sand them so that you can clearly see the wood and the wood cells under a microscope. That's an important step. Um, and then the first step is often visual. So this process we call cross-dating. And the first step is often visual, where you're um, trying yourself as a researcher to get familiar with that pattern that I was talking about. Which are the rings that are wide? Um, which are the rings that are narrow? What years do they occur? And do these years match between the different samples? Um, so that's visual cross-dating. Then we often check that um, with statistical cross-dating. And to do that, you need to actually measure the width of each and every individual ring. Now, Douglas in his day actually did that with a ruler, but we now have <laughs> uh, computers and, and microscopes and, and measuring stages to, to do that. Uh-huh. So we have a measure, measuring stage on which you put the sample um, that can move the sample in a very delicate way and thus connect it to a computer, and the computer then, then records uh, when the... Uh, when you say this is a trailing boundary. Mm-hmm. And so, and of course, you know what year zero is. That's the year that you took the core and all the trees have reached that point. So you're going to, in a way, you're laying them all out next to each other. And yep. the older ones are going to be, as it were, longer, deeper. Yep. Um, they're going to have more ring and then you can go back that way. Yes. So by the time you're done, you've got site B, you have a sort of a statistically valid idea of the climate at site B for the last, I don't know, 50 years, if, if these are young trees, I guess. Yeah, so the, the, that's a good point. Like, mostly to be certain of the pattern, you want typically more than 50 years. Like, the, the less yeah, right. rings there are, the more uncertainty there is. So uh-huh. I would say, you know, especially for climate reconstruction, you want to be, you want to be able to go further back in time than the instrumental data, than, so than this the is period... Why- this is why you and your colleagues are connoisseurs of old trees. Yes. And why this, we go. this is your this is your this is your lost ark of the covenant. Yes, it? This exactly. is your great find is the oldest possible tree in any given region. Yep. Or a, a oldest group of trees in any given yeah, region. Exactly. So the older yeah. the trees, the further back in time we can reconstruct that climate. Okay. So um let's talk about old trees you have known. Um uh, you uh, describe you found uh, is it the oldest tree in Greece? Is that was the that your oldest, discovery? Oldest uh, tree in in Europe. Um, and your oldest tree in Europe yeah. is in Greece. Oldest in, living tree in Europe. Yeah, yeah. I was in part a, in of a, the team that discovered that tree. Yeah. And so, all right, you, it's in the mountains in Greece somewhere, um, and it's arid. I mean, it meets all the criteria. It's like yeah. sort of like the, the White Mountains of California. I mean, it's sort exactly. Of, uh, it's high yeah. up in the mountains. It's uh, uh, Greece, so it's Mediterranean climate. 
Um, and, you know, we, it's, you know, you hike up from, so you, first we went to the old, the, sorry, the, the highest elevation village in Greece. And from there, it's still about a three hour hike up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And you arrive at that site. And, you know, if you have an eye for old trees, you can immediately tell that these trees are old. Like you, there, there's, there's things that, um, there's, aspects of the tree and not anatomy um, that old trees have that young trees don't they have kind of a stunted mm-hmm. appearance typically they often have a dead top because their top has died over time they have very heavy branches uh, they don't have any lower branches um, so there's a, a number of things that you can tell these are old trees so we started um, coring those trees in greece and and how do you do that? If you just the, explain, because uh, people are going to be horrified immediately. Yes. Coring, <laughs> I'm sure you get this all the time. That people think you're killing lots of old trees. That's but true. How do you how do you core a tree? Yeah. So I should have started this whole conversation by saying that we do, typically do not cut down trees for the uh, purpose of our science. Um, we bring with us a hollow core. So we, that allows us to take, it's almost like a biopsy of the mm-hmm. tree. So what's important to know is that of the stem of a tree, most of it is wood and, and wood is dead material per definition. Wood cells are no longer alive. Neither are bark cells. So of the stem of a tree, there's only a very thin layer of living cells, that's called a cambium, in between the wood and the bark of a tree. So when we take a sample with our hollow core, we core into the tree, and our core is maybe a quarter of an inch in diameter. Well, that big. I thought it was. I thought it might even be smaller than that. No, it's it's typically about a quarter of an inch. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, five mil. Yeah. Um, you only take that much of material out of, of living material out of a tree. Everything else is dead. So if you mm-hmm. think of that big of a big sheet of of cambium surrounding the entire stem of the tree, and you only take a quarter of an inch diameter yeah. sample out of that, it doesn't hurt the tree at all. Not at all. No. I mean, this is why people are able to tap maple for maple syrup. I mean, and, and yeah, every other kind more, of syrup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's much and more that's, uh, intrusive. Exactly. Um, and neither they nor you want to kill the tree. So you, um, you, you're, you core the trees and then you've got your samples and you core them. You describe a couple of times where you're like frenetically trying to core them. You've hiked up a mountain and you have to get off the mountain before dark and, <laughs> right, and you're, right. <laughs> you're, you're working very, very fast. This is, sounds a lot like hard work. It is quite hard work. Um, luckily, like, so, you know, we, we often go to rather remote places cause that's where uh, old trees are, are left. Um, when you travel all the way to Greece or all the way to the Bristol-Compine National Forest, you don't go for the day. You go for like a week or 10 days or two weeks. Um, mm-hmm. And you get better, you know, your muscle memory kicks in um, after a couple of days and you the coring goes easier once you're, it's it's quite a, so yeah, you, you it's, it's uh, you know, upper body, it requires upper body yeah. strength and it requires some <laughs> muscles that you don't normally use in in it's the kind of manual life. labor that, that most professors have been trying to avoid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, so uh, talk, let's talk about those old trees. You talk about, you, you use all sorts of terms like clonal trees, heritage trees, pioneers, and faders. Let's go through that a little bit because I was fascinated by the clonal and heritage tree dispute. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But what's a, what's a clonal tree and then what's a heritage tree? Yeah. So a clonal tree is... Um, a tree where the individual stem, so the part that sticks out of the ground, typically is maybe only a hundred years old, but they are part of a of a root system of a clonal system um, that can be much much older. That can be eight to to ten thousand years old. Um, mm-hmm. I think even when in Utah, there's a system of aspen where the, the, the underground part of it 
of the system is 80,000 years old, but the individual stems of the actual individual trees are only about 100 years old, and then they die off again. So depending on how you define a tree, um, you can, you know, a bristlecone pine can be the oldest living tree at 5,000 years, or it can be a clonal tree uh, mm-hmm. where the individual stems are, are very young, but the system as a whole is, is much older. So, so these are trees that do what um, I'm thinking of those people who are gardeners might grow azaleas. Azaleas sort of mat themselves and then pop back up. So they're they're sort of cloning themselves in a way. I think raspberries do the same thing. Sort of bushes do that, um, but trees also do that. So that's a clonal tree, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, how do? By the way, how did they figure out that the aspen was eighty thousand years old? I mean, you can't um, you can't core you can't core it. No, uh, you that can't. A car- so carbon dating? radiocarbon dating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although okay. now I, I um, I'm gonna have to get back to you on the eighty thousand. I might be. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> um, the uh, heritage trees, that's uh, another thing. So people say, and I, you had the same experience I once had, uh, where someone, an English person explains, oh, yes, that you is, you know, 3,000 years old or something like that um, uh, in the churchyard over there. Right. Um, but not really. Yeah, very how, unlikely. Why not? Um, it does make me wonder how they come up with that estimate of 3,000 years. So one aspect of it is that most of those uh, old trees or heritage trees either don't have rings, so it's impossible to actually dendrochronologically date them. Like olive trees, for instance, in in Italy, there's, there's a lot of these ancient olive trees that are said to be, I mean, they have a lot of historical value, don't get me wrong, but they're said to be thousands and thousands of years old, but olive trees don't show clear rings at all. So it's hard to, to date them. The yew trees in, um, in England is another good example where most of these trees are hollow in the inside. Um, they've mm-hmm. been, uh, you know, if they are old, um, and so their wood has rotted away on the inside. So you can't really, you don't know, you know, the oldest rings are in the, the inner part of the tree. So you don't know how old those oldest rings are because they're gone. Um, what is often done is that the, the tree growth of the outer rings, uh, so the most recent rings, is then being extrapolated towards the center um, to come up with a with an age estimate for those trees. Um, but trees grow much slower when they're old than when they're young. So the most recent rings on the outside are much, much more narrow than the ones would have been uh, on the inside of the tree that, those are not, that are gone now. So you can't just extrapolate that tree growth, the speed at which a tree grows from just looking at its oldest uh, rings or at its most mm-hmm. recent rings. Um, so that's that's what's going on there. But again, those trees are um, they're valuable. They are old. They, they might not be 3,000 years old, but they're 700, 800 years old, which is very old. It's old. Um, yeah, and they do tell us a lot about, about history as well. So it's just mm-hmm. a different different way of looking at things um you have a a, a very uh, a couple powerful sentences you say trees remember mm-hmm. they record history and don't lie uh, could you explain what you mean by that um yeah i mean it it it's an experience from from looking at a lot of um those rings and trees and sometimes when you are cross dating you kind of you want to fit things together that you know don't really fit um, <laughs> but still you want them to fit so badly that uh, especially when you're a beginning student I, I remember doing this when I was a beginning student thinking that I could make things fit but it doesn't work that way the trees were there experienced the world as it was and I can't uh, impose on them what I think, how I think sh- things should be. Um, they're they're the ones who've not. They have no. Yeah, they don't lie. They don't have a reason to. Uh, they're just witnesses and recorders of what happened. 
Um, and it's the way we interpret them uh, that might lead to confusion sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is what this is this relates to what you when you say that trees are paleoclimate proxies and that they can teach us what instrumental records uh, can't. Exactly. Um, um, so you discuss the the drought cycle in European history. So how, what do trees tell us about the dr- the overall drought cycle in European history, which is of tremendous importance to the history of humans in Europe? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, so in Europe, uh, the the longest continuous tree ring chronology um, worldwide um, is based on oaks and pines from Germany. Mm-hmm. And how far uh, back does that can, go? Because Yeah, this it is goes kind of almost uh, a little over 12,000 years back. <laughs> so it, it doesn't mean that the trees are 12,000 years old, right? It's not like, like the bristlecone pines. Each individual tree is no more than 500 years old in that chronology. But the process of cross-dating that I explained earlier allows us mm-hmm. to match living the, the chronology in living trees with that in dead trees, with that in archaeological material and historical buildings. <clears throat> and then the very oldest part of that German oak and pine chronology is based on subfossil wood, which means wood that has been pre- preserved under conditions without oxygen. So um, in Germany, that was mostly in, in peat bogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and in river sediments where the trees fell uh, maybe 10,000, 11,000 years ago and had, the wood has been preserved in, in bogs and in, in river sediments ever since. If there's no oxygen, there's not really anything to decay the wood over time. So with building uh, activities in the 20th century, some of that ancient wood has been exposed and can still be cross-dated. So this is a couple things I, I should say. This is gives us an amazing uh, set of en- environmental historical uh, proxies, paleoclimate proxies, as it were, measuring instruments going back twelve thousand years, yeah. which is extraordinary. Uh, because, by the way, that semi-fossilized wood also indicates that we, we can take the we can also do a dendrochronology on petrified wood. Correct. We can, but in a slightly different way. Yeah. I mean, so that means that you can even do tree ring samples in, Antar- in Antarctica. Yes, um, exactly. Which yeah. is also so it's not one continent in which you can't do this. But so what? Let's talk about the drought cycle. What what do the what does the oak pine chronology tell us about the drought cycle? Yeah. So one important thing that we did um, uh, is um, using uh, some of the wood of the um, German oak and, and pine chronology. Um, to look at what was happening around Roman times uh, in Europe, um, and specifically during the migration period. So the period when uh, the Western Roman Empire went through a transition. Um, uh, And so between 250 and and 550 uh, CE. Um, and what we found is that actually, so we, we used those tree rings to reconstruct drought over that period. Um, and we found that during that transition period of the Roman Empire, it was a very uh, volatile period in terms of drought. So it would be wet for a couple of decades and then dry for a couple of decades and then wet again and then dry again. And these are very difficult uh, circumstances for a uh, uh, society to adapt to uh, these kind of decadal scale uh, drought and wet periods. If it's slower, if it's drying out over centuries, you can adapt to that. Um, if it's faster, if it's wet one year and then dry the next and then wet again, or, or for two year, dry, dry for two years, you can build up reserves and you can, you know, you can sort of, if, if you're a healthy society, you can survive for, for a couple of years under harsh climate conditions. But these kind of decadal scale uh, changes are very hard to deal with because you can't, it's, it's too long to rely on reserves and it's too short to adapt. By the time you've adapted, things have changed again. So, so this would be, this would be an environmental uh, causation for the disintegration of the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman world. 
as in, yes. the, in the West as, as it the then West. was. Yeah, yeah. There's there yeah. was more aspects to it, obviously. Oh I'm yeah. Not, oh, yeah. Well, I wouldn't but, let. But, I mean, we're not. This is not. Uh, I mean, I have to. I wouldn't let you get away with uh, no, saying exactly. that this is the only. That's what I but it's certainly it's it's fascinating to find another cause. I mean, and we we know that there must have been a lots of cold and wet weather because, of course, there's also a lot of disease going on at the same time, like the the, the Justinian plague. Yeah, uh, exactly. The un, somewhat unfairly named Justinian plague. The plague requires certain environment in which to uh, thrive. Right. And uh, right. we know it must have been there. So this kind of demonstrates what, what was there. Right. Um, what um, I'm, I'm curious, the, this we can take this further, but um, what, what was the reason for this environmental change in the late and uh, from 250 to 500 or 550? Do you have any any theories about that amongst environmental scientists? Um, of the of the volatility of the climate, we're not there yeah. yet. No, huh? I don't think no. we know yet. We 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 have a, a so around five fifty towards the end of that period is when it started getting cooler uh, uh-huh. dramatically. Um, uh, There's the start of what's now called the late antique Little Ice Age. Yeah, um, and that is likely. Uh, because of a combination of factors, one of which was like the the eruption of three very big volcanoes in the tropics, so mm-hmm. one five thirty six, one five forty, and then one five around five forty seven. So these three consequent um, subsequent volcanic eruptions, and we know from from our current observations of volcanoes that big tropical eruptions can um, they spew. Uh, aerosols uh, high mm-hmm. up into the atmosphere, into the stratosphere, and they, they if they're big and powerful, they, they those aerosols create kind of a veil around um, the Earth's surface that reflects back some of the incoming solar radiation, some of the incoming sunshine gets reflected back, and as a result, the Earth's surface cools down. So mm-hmm. if you get a, a Normally, that cooling down effect is just one or two, maybe up to five years. Um, but if you get a, a bunch of those uh, that are following each other closely, a bunch of those volcanic eruptions that follow each other closely, that could have a longer term effect on the Earth's climate. Hmm. Um, moving forward, um, what what uh, can the tree rings tell us about the uh, social climatic history of medieval and early modern Europe? When we yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that's a that's a huge softball, but it's it's a, it's yeah, it's a crab so ball. I, it's like a, no, it's a good, it's a it's a again, I can I could talk for a very long time about that. Um, yeah, I could I, I could listen to you for a very long time. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and make sure that we cut it short somehow. But go ahead. Well, just... but it's, it, I think Europe is a nice uh, example of how of of what we can do with tree rings because tree rings really sit at the nexus of climate, ecology, and and human history. So we use trees from forests that are part of the ecology that are influenced by the climate. Um, But then we also use uh, wood from historical buildings and from uh, archaeological uh, sites. So, So there's also that human aspect that comes into play. And so tree rings really give as a means to study the interactions between the three the tree and we're the three sorry and we're not i mean it, there's endless opportunities to do that um so with with europe um i mentioned earlier there's not that many old trees left you know we found the oldest living tree that's just over a thousand years old but we do have a very long uh, written history in Europe, uh, thanks to the Romans' uh, love of, of writing. Um, so we can start matching uh, the, the climate history that we derive from the tree rings with the human history that we derive from um, mm-hmm. written documents. And that's where, that's where tree rings come in and are very important because they actually give us a history for each and every year because of their annual uh, precision. And then we can fill in the many gaps when the Romans weren't keeping a diary or got burned right. by, you know, some German right. or, or something like that. Um, uh, so they, they beautifully supplement one another. 
Um, exactly. So yeah. Can we talk about the medieval warm period? Because um, I know I, I've mentioned that to students in the past, and they think I'm a, a global warming denialist if I say that there was like global warming prior to like they, there's <clears throat> they anthropogenic global warming is for them often the only kind of global warming. Right. Right. Um, but of course, like I was taught, the medieval warm period is something extraordinarily important for the development of, of Europe. Right. But um, in, uh, um, there's there's multiple aspects to this. But so in the, the medieval warm period, nowadays we call it the medieval climate anomaly because uh, <laughs> um, the climate behaved uh, anomalously during that period. But it wasn't necessarily warming everywhere. It was warming in Europe. Uh, but other areas of the world, it was actually not necessarily warming. For instance, in the American West, it was more that it was drying. There were mega droughts. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was drying rather than warming. So in Which that sense, the, the warming story of we'll get to that part of the story because right. that's an important part. Yeah, that gets us right back to the beginnings of dendrochronology. But yes, it was exactly. warming. In, Full circle. I mean, you could yeah. you could grow grapes in England uh, for a while and and even central, I believe, middle England. You could there were vineyards. Which yep. there are not, there aren't now. Right, right. So, well, there's we're a little more selective about how we like our wine nowadays that than they were in medieval is. times. That's right. <laughs> um, so, so generally speaking, yes, the, the medieval times in Europe were warmer than the consecutive period, which we call the Little Ice Age, from around 1350 to 1850. But they were not as warm as it is now. So okay. um, we know from Turing archives and other archives uh, that the recent warming uh, is that it wasn't as warm as that during medieval times. Nevertheless, um, it, it had come up from this cooling period of 250 to 550. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes. Was, so it was, it was a, warmer it was, than it the period big, before. It was yeah. a big recovery. Yes, yes, exactly. So it was warmer than the period before. It was warmer than the period after the Little Ice Age. Um, mm. And in that sense, it was a, a warm period. Now, one thing we discovered using tree rings from Morocco, um, we combined those tree rings with um, actually a stalagmite record from Scotland. So hmm. similar to tree rings, there's other climate proxies, other archives um, that we can use to look at the past climate. And one of them is stalagmites, so the yeah, stalagmites in, in caves that can record, not all caves, but some caves can record how wet or how dry the conditions were above the cave uh, in the stalagmite. <clears throat> so what we found when we compared the stalagmite from Scotland with our truing data from Morocco, and the truing data in Morocco were from Atlas Cedars that are uh, very sensitive to how wet or how dry it is in Morocco. Uh, boat records span the past 1,000 years. And when you combine the two, you see that they uh, act oppositely. Whenever it was uh, drier than normal in Scotland, it was wetter than normal in Morocco hmm. and vice versa. Um, and so that... Um, led us to investigate the mechanism behind that anti-correlation between Scotland and Morocco. <clears throat> the mechanism is called the North Atlantic Oscillation. I won't go into detail about what, how that climatic mechanism works, but what we discovered is that during um, medieval times, the North Atlantic Oscillation was stuck in a, in a positive phase. So for, for 300 years, um, the North Atlantic Oscillation was stuck in a positive phase, which brings warm air uh, to Europe. Um, so that we found a natural mechanism of why mm -hmm. medieval times were warmer than usual uh, in Europe. And so, did the Little Ice Age come about when that oscillation shifted, or there there are, are there multiple reasons for there's the, multiple the Little reasons Ice Age? for that? Um, one, what are they? Yeah, one is that that oscillation shifted, but but um, that's we're talking about Europe here. So unlike mm -hmm. the medieval uh, climate anomaly, which uh, was warm in Europe but not necessarily warm everywhere around the world, the Little Ice Age was was colder than usual. As far as we know, well, everyone, everywhere around the world, as far as we know, as we have records for, for um, mm -hmm. everywhere around the world. And so 
partly that is um, in Europe, that is partly due to the change in the Northern Atlantic Oscillation. But other factors that come into play there is, again, those volcanic eruptions. So during the Little Ice Age, that's a period of more volcanic uh, activity than in the period, uh, than in medieval times. And also in changes in um, the amount of energy that the sun sent uh, towards the Earth. So and that's because of the, the, the increase in sunspots, as best as is understood, right? The, the decrease, the yeah. So, decrease, so decrease. Mondor minimum, for instance, exactly is a is a sixty year period uh, from the mid seventeenth century till seventeen fifteen, when there was uh, a, a a clear reduction of the amount of energy that the sun sent towards the earth. Mm-hmm. And I, we should say that the uh, at least the geologists tell us that. Um, that Earth is a an ice an ice house is that an ice house planet um, that uh, that because of the the changes in its orbit it right. spends more time cold than it does warm right uh, so I got that, that is, right no I I don't know about cold I the how much time it spends in in cold versus warm uh, those are different time scales than the ones that that i work yes, on very different time yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> these are the million year time scale yes kind of exactly yeah. but it's yeah. it's true that um overall over the last two thousand years um because of changes in the orbit uh of the of the earth around the sun the planet has been cooling down very slowly over the last two thousand years and that's now been reversed with anthropogenic uh, yeah warming yeah um we haven't gotten to the point where we see anthropogenic warming yet as a savior but who knows um (laughs) (laughs) warming up um uh let's uh finish this off this this series of case studies with um uh going through the end of the four corner society in colorado new mexico arizona utah um this is this is how dendrochronology began uh, right. When those right. archaeologists came um, and and asked a lot of questions of Andrew D- Douglas, so um, wh- what does what does what does dendrochronology now tell us about the end of Four Corners society? Um, yeah, so so the Four Corners region is a great region to do dendrochronology. One because we've we have been doing dendrochronology there for almost a century now, so we have a lot of material to work on. Two, there's a lot of archaeological material. And three, um, the, the the trees typically can grow old and they're very sensitive to drought. So the trees are very reliable means to to, to look at drought in the past. Um, and so that means we can link uh, drought to uh, past human history in this specific case to, to what happened to the ancient Puebloan uh, civilizations in the American West. Um, I mentioned earlier that in medieval times, Europe was warmer than usual, but in uh, the Four Corners region, uh, the medieval times were uh, characterized by mega droughts, droughts that lasted for 40, 50, 60 years. So Hmm. there was a a number of these mega droughts during that period, which we now know from tree rings that we we didn't know this before. Um, When you then link these periods of mega droughts with the dates that Douglas and and people working after him uh, put on when... um, the ancient Puebloan ruins, I'm talking about Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, uh, some of uh, Aztec ruins, for instance, when those were built and abandoned, you can see that those um, mega droughts uh, correspond to periods when, uh, for instance, the, the Mesa Verde civilization disbanded basically um mm-hmm. so so it again um uh, as as we mentioned earlier uh climate was definitely not the only contributor to uh the abandonment uh of the four corners uh region or of, of the, the disintegration of, of, of some of the ancient civilizations there but it, it was a factor that that came into play um i'm 
you're an environmental scientist. I'm a historian. This is uh, this podcast is called Historically Thinking. Um, are you doing history um, as you conceive history? Um, certainly, you're supporting history. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I don't see now how any historian studying the environment or or social history could not be thinking about tree rings. Right. But <laughs> but what are you? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good. I I have to I have to think about this more. I've I've been so so these studies that I talked about, you know, I know about the Roman Empire, about the um, ancient Puebloans. When we as uh, paleoclimatologists or as dendroclimatologists uh, work on topics like this that involve human history we typically collaborate with historians because no, I'm not a historian. I wish I were now that I'm, <laughs> you know, um, you've come into it from a really a very interesting side door. That's for yes, sure. Yes, Exactly. <laughs> so I, I would say I'm a paleoclimatologist. My expertise is in looking at the climate of the past and studying the climate of the past. I am fascinated by how that interlinks with, uh, human systems of the past and ecosystems of the past but to i need uh, historians to collaborate with who can come in from that angle i think that's where the best research is being done um, so mm -hmm. listen and well, learn from each other well what i like about it is that you know historian who's always suspicious when there are a lot of popular books about the past which are written by uh, people with one big theory it's often about climate it's maybe something else um, and I've, I had a friend once say to me, oh, gosh, you know, why can't you historians write books like that? You never explain, you know, how the things actually happen. And this guy, he's really explaining how things happen. But, you know, um, people are inventive. Um, they can change. Uh, they change their environment or adapt to the environment around them. That's what making tools does for you. Um, and it's uh, I, I really like that you don't actually just give one. It, this is the climactic explanation for everything. Right. Right. Yeah. I um, have to, yeah, sorry, I'll just when I have to say, I, um, I, uh, for my book, I'm very grateful to my colleague who's a historian, Dagmar de Groot at Georgetown University. He's an environmental historian who reviewed the book for me and pointed out some aspects where I should, uh, be careful and, 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 <laughs> Yeah, put more emphasis on on other aspects, but climatological that could have played a role. So, so that's a, a good concrete example of a historian and a paleoclimatologist working to to bring the best uh, information. Yeah, um, I want to finish uh, our conversation by reading to you the epigram for your book. Um, I never thought of epigrams all that important until I wrote a book and. Uh, very early on, I had the epigram in my head, and I, in some ways, I was writing towards it the entire time, which I never thought that was the case. So now, I'm looking at the books that come in uh, for the podcast or that I'm reading for other things, and I'm always looking at the epigram and thinking about it. Um, and yours really struck me, uh, partly because it's from one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, um, and because it's a, it's a famous lines of hers, and they're beautiful. They're instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. Uh, what's that importance to you? Why did you choose that as the epigram? How did you? How were? You, how were you writing to it? If you were, yeah. So, uh, thanks for asking that. I think it's it's a absolutely stunning uh, poem by Mary Mary Oliver. She passed away while I was writing this book, um, mm. and that's w where I started reading more of her work and came across this and and it struck me because it's it is how i am trying to live my life um by paying attention and being astonished about it and then i realized what i'm doing now with with writing this book is is also telling about it so i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm doing the third aspect of it but, but part of the reason why i wrote this book um is i want to make people more excited about science again. I want them to be astonished by the things we can do with science. And, and tree ring research lends itself uh, to that purpose so well because 
you know, the, the concept of it is easy to explain and familiar to a lot of people. So starting from that concept, what I aim to do with this book is to show um, the astonishment, the, the, the sense of discovery of the things that we can do with this fairly simple concept of, of counting the rings of trees, how far yeah. we can go with that. Um, I, I've often said uh, to students that uh, history is a way of thinking, but also a way of seeing. And um, reading this book, um, I realized that all intellectual discipline is a way of paying attention to something. Right. Um, I had a colleague at Augustana College who would say about how they he had gone to a swamp south of uh, of, of town along the Mississippi, and he was listening with another college who's an ornithologist and. He was listening to the bird song and he said, oh, I hear like three or four birds. How many do you hear? And the ornithologist cocked his head and like maybe five seconds later said 35. <laughs> and it's a great example of of what beginning – the ornithologist saw things. He heard things in this case in a way different than you or I could. Um, yeah. uh, you see trees in a way different than the rest of us do. You know, I see houses, streets. I see a lot of different things, different than other people do. Um, but it all begins with paying attention and then being astonished. And yep. then leading, attention leading to astonishment, which I think is a beautiful thing. I, I couldn't agree more. Yep. Okay. Well, my guest today has been Valerie Trey, and she's the author of Tree Story, The History of the World Written in Rings. Valerie, thanks you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much again, Al. It's really been my pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.